a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors and brilliant menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and today we're talking about the benefits of fasting when you've had a cancer diagnosis and you're pushed into menopause as a result of your treatment. Now, there are so many conversations out there about the benefits of fasting. There are some really big voices with a media, social media audience of millions of people, and they all talk about the benefits of fasting. But what does that mean for you who've had a, who's had a cancer diagnosis and who's been pushed into menopause? I want to know exact data that supports the potential benefits of fasting for us. And so I'm delighted to welcome back Toral Shah to the podcast. Toral is a nutritional scientist and an integrative oncology practitioner. She came onto the podcast actually when we first launched over a year and a half ago with her own story of breast cancer and navigating tamoxifen and the difficulty that came with that for her. But today she's here with her scientific hat on and I can't wait to explore this topic with her. Hello and welcome back to the podcast, Toro. How are you? I'm good. How are you? When you came onto the show a year and a half or nearly two years ago, we've spoke about your own journey as a breast cancer survivor and the ups and downs and curveballs. But today I want to tap into your professional expertise, if that's okay. Absolutely. You are such a great member of our community. You're often in our Facebook community chatting and people often bombard you with nutritional questions, right? And the question about fasting has come up over and over again. And so I thought it would be brilliant to talk about it. What's the complexity with fasting, do you think? Why is it one of those topics that is really difficult to answer? I think it's a topic that's really difficult to answer because we've never really had many studies on fasting particularly in cancer and menopause and actually there's far more evidence and small studies than ever before so i think part of the problem again stems from the fact that we don't include nutrition and lifestyle in our medical school degree so doctors don't know much about this and whilst academic researchers are starting to understand so much more about the link between fasting and different types of diets and foods and cancer this takes on average 17 to 20 years to translate down to clinical practice. So we're really, really behind the actual science. So then it means that, you know, with advent of internet and Google, which we never had really 20 years ago, people are able to find things out for themselves and then try to apply them. But then if you have the background of biochemistry, uh, metabolic health, physiology, it's quite difficult and it is quite new. And we have to remember that every single person's body it's different, and as is your relationship with food, your relationship to eating. And, you know, we are in an age where a lot of women may have had some form of disordered eating too, and we don't want to exasperate that with things like fasting. So that's just kind of my understanding of why we, um, there's a real growth in the knowledge base, yet we don't have enough people who understand it to really talking about it. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to tap into your knowledge today, because we have so many people say um, they have listened to big podcasts and, you know, with millions of downloads and big voices in this space talk about fasting. But what does that mean for us once you've had a cancer diagnosis? Do we have evidence? Do we have facts? And I know we're going to get to that. But like you said to me in preparing for this conversation, you said we need to go three steps backwards before we can really understand all of the mechanism. And what does that mean for someone who is in a menopausal body after a cancer diagnosis? Because that is really our unique almost state of being, right? Our bodies are different. Once you've had a cancer diagnosis, your emotional and physical health has changed. And also we act a little bit differently with or without those hormones. And so take us back to fasting, take us back, not just to the last 10 years, where does fasting come from in a society? And I think this is the, like, the beauty of fasting is that 
we have been fasting for the whole of human existence. We have been fasting in a way that, you know, we've done this for religious reasons. We've done this for uh, cultural reasons. We've done this for all sorts of reasons, health reasons. And fasting isn't a new thing. Um, if you think about things like Lent, which, you know, if you're a Christian, you may celebrate, that is a form of fasting. You think about Ramadan for Muslims, form of fasting. In the Jain culture, uh, which Gandhi was part of, there was, you know, there's a month of fasting. Yeah, you know, well, actually, it's 10 days. So it's not a new thing. And fasting can mean so many different things. And I think we have to be clear that fasting, I mean, the word fasting, all it means is like restricting what you're eating over a certain amount of time. And then we have to go into the nuances of what fasting is. When most people are talking about fasting, they're talking about intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. Um, obviously, there's more stricter forms of fasting where in Ramadan, you, you know, you fast all day. In the Jain culture, when you have this month, you fast all day and all night. So you're on a water fast. Um, in Lent, you're cutting out, you know, all different types of food. But fasting is really um, when you are, rather than it's about when you eat rather than what you eat. And you're choosing these regular time periods to eat and fast. And if you think about just pre-internet, pre, you know, modern day life, and I, and, I, and I think back to myself, and this is, you know, showing my age, but I remember when the shops shut, on Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and there were the supermarkets and they were not open on Sunday. And this is in the 80s in the UK. So automatically you had less access to food. There wasn't delivery and Uber Eats and things bringing food to your table. You cooked most of your food yourself. And obviously if if there were small, you know, little corner shops open, but the supermarkets were not open on Sundays. And I remember that really changed things, supermarkets and the opening till late night and things like before everything shut at 6 p.m. and that was the end of that. So naturally you got home, you made your food and that was the end of that. And we weren't, we were eating earlier. Uh, if you think back even 100, 150 years, not everyone had electricity. So you would eat before it became dark, especially in you know, some countries. So this having food available all the time and eating all the time, it's a relatively new phenomenon because we just didn't have access to food all the time. And this is why I think we have to look at metabolic health alongside fasting to understand impact on cancer. We are now available food is available 24 7 we don't even have to leave a house you can sit on your couch use your phone and order food and i will be honest until the pandemic i never ordered like take like a delivery takeaway like it just it just wasn't part of my kind of way of being and now you know the, the world's changed a bit and we were stuck at home for so long so i will have food delivered at home but the point being that it's we are living in a world that we've never had before so then we are whilst we've always had fasting and different types of time restricted eating within our health practices or religious practices or cultural practices, we're now trying to understand the impact of these things in a world which is different to the world we had before. Yeah. And you know, I am Austrian and in Austria, the majority of the supermarkets are still shut on a Sunday. And now when I spend the summer holidays with my children in Austria, the kids can't get their head around the fact that we can't just pop to the shops on Sunday and buy ice creams and, and whatever because they're shut. And it is really, you need to get your head around it. And actually, like you say, it's good to have that time in your week where you just break state a little bit and you have to think of access and what you prepare. I have a quick favor to ask to help the show keep growing. Please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. What you said is really important. And that to me is what does fasting do? And why do we fast? And I really want to be so differentiated because people can go and listen to Dr. Mindy Pelt and all of those big voices if they want to listen to Dr. Chatterjee about fasting. But can you talk us through fasting and the benefits of, for example, when you're a pre or a postmenopausal woman? Because there are already benefits there depending on hormone levels. And that's before you've even thrown cancer into the mix. And I think we have to remember that women... Are not small men, and I think Stacey Sims does a really good job of this. Women and men are different, and so fasting is always going to impact us differently because pre-menopause, you know, pre-menopause, you have a cycle. 
And so your estrogen levels and your progesterone levels increase and decrease throughout the month. And at the first half of the month, essentially, you're building up your uterus <laughs> to potentially fertilize egg and get pregnant. And in the second half, if it's not fertilized, you're breaking that down, the uterus and the lining, well, the, not the uterus, the lining, let's say, and expelling that. And obviously, that's linked to your estrogen and progesterone hormones and you know, luteinizing and all the other ones. So what your body needs is different at different times of the month. So, you know, I think Mel, Mel Depends has very simplified this, but it, it, some of it is correct. It is very true in that, you know, when you're building up to being pregnant, you're going to require different nutrients as when you're breaking things out. And it's just, you know, basic energy, right? So there is something, and not because when it comes to men, they have a much more static Obviously, they have hormone changes too, because obviously there's so many hormones, not just the sex hormones. But it's a bit more kind of even. Whereas with women, we're so cyclical that this changes. So menopause can affect people differently, and I think you know we want to think about fasting in a different way. We want to think about you know when you're building up, you need more energy. So during your when you're ovulating, you know you you you'll feel different. Your body's doing different things. Your estrogen progesterone at their peak, you know, things like that. When you're having your period, they're quite low and you're building up again. So you're going to have different energy levels and need different food for that thing. And actually, there were some studies to show that um, when your progesterone is dipping, which is the second half of your cycle, you actually need more calories and more carbs. So that's interesting to me that, you know, so I think you have to know your body. And the problem is that so many of us have taken things like birth control and other hormonal medications. So we're not even that aware of what our natural cycle is. And that's yeah. going to impact it. And then when it comes to menopause, we are in, there's less estrogen, full stop. And so we're in decline. And then our body is behaving in a different way. Estrogen is so protective in so many ways, even though so many of us are scared of estrogen because we may have had hormone positive cancers. In some ways it's, you know, and menopause is natural, of course, but some of us have experienced it at an earlier state. So we haven't, and, and a more sudden state, I will say. And that's really hard and tough. And we, yeah, that's all, I mean, you've, you've got many other people talking about that. But, um, and so your body you know, suddenly goes into menopause. Um, whereas obviously a natural cycle, you know, it'll take, there's a period of time where you, your body transitions and that's called perimenopause. And then menopause is obviously the time when you've had a year without any, you know, without any periods of cycle. So, our body behavior, we know that estrogen declines and that impacts our insulin resistance. And this is where I want to talk about metabolic health. We cannot talk about fasting without understanding metabolic health and also the link between metabolic health and cancer. And I think this is really important. Are you okay for me to explain a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, I'd love for you. Before you do that, you know, one thing that just occurred to me when you were talking about our periods is so many people in our community and listening to your conversation now, we have really difficult relationships with our cycles and our periods. You know, many women have actually a lot of pain, a lot of um, mood disorder for all of their adult life. Then cancer comes along and then maybe we're pushed into this menopause and then suddenly we have the loss or the absence of periods. Or maybe our physical body has changed because we've been put into menopause and there is hardly any time to catch up and also hardly any time to make up emotionally with what it means to be a woman and what it has meant all of our life. If you think of from us transitioning from girls into women, into having periods, whether you bear children or not, it doesn't matter to have that cycle, to then be pushed into a menopausal body. How is how are we ever going to be able to catch up even psychologically, right? It's a lot to sort of grapple with. But we have to also remember we live in a super patriarchal world. And until recently, I would say the last few years, no one talked about, really talked openly about periods, endometriosis, menopause. These are things that we hid. We did not talk about bleeding and we did not talk about the pains. And like, you know, one in 10 women has endometriosis and, you know, it was dismissed. There's been a lot of medical gaslighting. Um, mm -hmm. We have way less um, research and investment in women's health. In fact, to every pound that's invested, um, only a 20th is invested in women's health. So we people in the dark, I mean, there's been a brilliant video that I saw on Instagram about this woman interviewing men about what they thought the period was or when, what actually happens and all these things. And men were just clueless. And then I thought, well, if they're clueless, 
that's half the population. But they need to know because they all have mothers, sisters, partners, girlfriends, friends, you know, women in the workplace. So if no one's ever taught. And the, the big change happened when we had the COVID pandemic and everyone stuck at home and everyone started to see these things. Those You could not hype them. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about medical gaslighting for endometriosis. If people put, if doctors, for example, put women into surgically onset menopause without talking them through about what that means, I think that is also medical gaslighting. We have so many women in our community who are not contraindicated to HRT. No one spoke to them about giving them the hormones back. How does anyone ever think that is right? It's just crazy, right? And they don't talk about sex either and sexuality. No. The point is you're supposed to be grateful that you're alive. And my conversation to my doctor, and I always challenge them is, why has no one talked to me about sex and sexuality? And when it's appropriate to have that, how, what you can do to help it. Yeah. We need to talk. And there's a brilliant doctor called Dr. Leila Agawal on um, the internet who's, talk, who's actually talking about it. It just makes me so happy because yeah. it's an important part of a great emotional and mental you know, health to have sex or to want sex and if there's sexual dysfunction that you don't want it you're scared or all of those things then there's a problem and no one wants to talk about it and that is health care right that is health care yeah but metabolic health metabolic health (laughs) anyway so to really like again like talk what is metabolic health because i think i want i want to define that before um we kind of look at the link with insulin resistance and we look at um fasting so the word the the phrase metabolic health is assessed by based on five markers blood sugar levels triglycerides high density lipoprotein um cholesterol that's hdl cholesterol your blood pressure and waist uh, circumference and these are all things that we look at men and in women now if you have these markers correspond to persons likelihood of developing heart disease diabetes or stroke and we have to keep these numbers in a healthy range. But to do that, we have to make consistent choices that keep our glucose levels stable. Now, if you think about metabolic syndrome, you have three or more of the following. A waistline of 35 inches for women or 40 inches. For men, you have a fasting glucose above 100 milligrams per deciliter. You have HDL cholesterol, which is less than 40 milligrams per deciliter. These are all numbers. I'm just like sharing what they are. Triglycerides above 150 milligrams per deciliter. And you have high blood pressure, which is 130 of 85 or higher. Now, so many people in our westernized world, in the UK, US, wherever, have three or more of these. And they have metabolic syndrome. And that impacts your risk of, you know, as I said, heart disease, diabetes, but also inflammation and cancer. So, and just a little recap between the relationship between sugar and cancer is particularly complex. And we know that having eating sugar and other carbohydrates can increase inflammation by causing blood glucose levels to increase, and that increases insulin levels increase. This is not a problem by itself. I think the key is that we have to remember that we want rather we want to keep our insulin levels kind of more of a gentle undulating way rather than sheep, you know, uh, these peaks up and down. I think things like Zoe means that people have started, and the, far, you know, all Tim Spector's where, and, you know, the Mindy Pell, all the people are trying to, starting to understand this whole insulin resistance. And if we have high levels of insulin, we know that this can stimulate cancer cell division. And this is why all of this kind of becomes linked. Um, so that's very, very important. We also have to remember that certain cancers, there are 13 different cancers, which are linked to obesity and being overweight. And if you have extra fat cells, that can produce extra estrogen. Um, and this estrogen is producing the fat cells. It can also increase inflammation and it can include, um, cause insulin resistance, which encourages the body to promote growth hormones. High levels of these hormones can promote the growth of cancer cells. So that's kind of the soup that we're swimming and that we need to understand as to why is fasting become really popular and why are we trying to learn more about it? When it comes to menopause, we know that if you have declining or low estrogen levels, 
insulin resistance can increase. What is insulin resistance? And I want to kind of explain this in a kind of a layperson's way to make sure that we, we understand what it is. So basically insulin resistance, just to keep it really, really simple, we use insulin, it's released from pancreas um, in response to rising glucose levels in the blood. The whole point of it is to open the doors on the cell walls of the muscle and liver cells to allow glucose in, where it's either converted into energy or stored. If you have higher insulin levels that's circulating, that means you're going to store more energy as body fat. Muscle cells account for a lot, up to 90% of our glucose uptake. So that's why building muscle, particularly after menopause, in menopause, we start to lose a muscle mass more quickly than before menopause. And so that's becomes really important. So our fat cells can also take glucose in the presence of insulin store it as body fat. So insulin resistance isn't about not having enough insulin, although it can, you know, develop type 2 diabetes. It's more resistance in the fact that the cells, they're not responding and they stop listening to the insulin. And so then your body thinks there isn't that much insulin and releases more, but it's more about having a door that doesn't quite work, if that makes sense. Um, and when they cells become resistant to insulin, they don't work quite so well. So normally insulin will switch off the liver from producing glucose. But if the cells don't respond to insulin as well, then the liver continues to produce glucose, which makes everything a lot worse. So that's why insulin resistance is really interesting. So when it comes to um, menopause, what happens? So we know that um, estrogen is related. It protects the body against insulin resistance. Estrogen does so many things for our body and our brain, and it acts on so all the organs in the body. There's receptors everywhere. So I think that's something that we forget. We often think it's just about our periods and sex hormones and things like that. But when you think about estrogen and the receptors being all over the body, it can you know impact us in different ways. So for example, I'll just give you my own example. When I'm on tamoxifen, which is an estrogen blocker and puts me, you know, kind of in through kind of menopausal symptoms. I have splitting headaches. I mean, I'm just thinking that this is, you know, where, you know, where the, for me, it's a real problem. There's such bad headaches that I can't function because clearly I have lots of estrogen receptors in my brain, which everyone does. And that's why sometimes you might get this whole, like, you know, menopausal foggy brain because we have all these receptors in our, you know, estrogen receptors in our brain. And so what we know is that, mm, when we don't have enough estrogen, it impacts our body in so many ways, but it also makes us more insulin resistance. So when they looked at a meta-analysis, like look at all the data, we know that taking HRT actually kind of improves your insulin resistance. But obviously for those of us who've had potentially hormone positive cancers, we not may, we can't really take it. So the bottom line is that estrogen and our metabolic health are linked. Um, and, we, and it's basically how we distribute our body fat and how we respond to glucose. Now, when we are menopausal, we often have our, you know, losing muscle mass. And that's why resistance training becomes so important for so many reasons. A, to build up that you know, muscle mass to keep our metabolism high, but also um, so that it would become less insulin resistance. We know that if you have a higher body weight, that's more associated to insulin resistance. But it doesn't mean that it's definitely going to happen. It's just associated with so but the problem is it becomes a vicious cycle because insulin resistance can be linked to us like gaining weight in the first place when you become menopausal um, and what we want to avoid is kind of that visceral fat the fat around our organs and that fat around our middle which happens when we get menopause and you know when we yeah. go through menopause and then we becomes you know and that fat becomes more metabolically active so it's just but then there's loads of things. It's not just, you know, it's your genetics, your sleep, your stress, your ethnicity, your family history. So metabolic syndrome, for example, the the numbers that we use are probably different in South Asians because we are have really poor metabolic health due to so many reasons, but partly to do with the millions of famines that we had so many famines that affected millions when the British colonized India. And that's affected our long-term metabolic health globally because so many Indians have emigrated to different countries. So these are the, the kind of nuances that we have to look at when it comes to fasting. So hopefully I've set the scene and then I can now talk about fasting. So what I hear from you and what we know is that when you're in a postmenopausal body, especially when that has happened early after a cancer diagnosis, it is harder to have good metabolic health and it is harder for our insulin resistance 
to work great, right? That door in a premenopausal body, like you explained so well, opens and closes really well. And in a postmenopausal body with the lack of estrogen, the door is really clunky, right? Making lots of noises. And sometimes you can't actually shut it properly. So we're in a state of a physiological body that doesn't actually perform as well for us. And so I wonder, we have to work harder and we have to be smarter so that we nourish and take action so that we can get our body to work as best as possible for our circumstances. And I guess this is where fasting comes in. But how does fasting connect? Because what's really interesting when we talk about metabolic health, for the first time, um, just before Christmas, my cholesterol levels were higher than they should be. And you know how disappointed I was about that, because I am so proud of eating so well and looking after myself so well. And we're not going to go into a whole coaching session because I need to book a consultation with you (laughs) if we were going to do that. But I was thinking, okay, rubbish. I'm 44. I'm doing everything I can. And my body is kind of like not responding how I thought it would. But let's not worry about that now. But this is kind of like metabolic health and what you were talking about, right? But also we have to remember that things like, and, and, and the, you know, the reason I'm understanding you at this point, because I had the same problem. When I was on tamoxifen last time, my cholesterol levels went up. So again, all of this is linked to us blocking our estrogen and having estrogen blocking treatment. I know you've had your ovaries removed and things like that, but what, however you're doing it. Um, and this is something no one talks about. So I kind mm-hmm. of went back to, and also sometimes there's certain elements of treatment. For example, with radiotherapy, it can affect your thyroid hormones. And that can affect your cholesterol levels. Now, no one talks about these things. There's such a link in our bodies. So when you're younger and you're going through these things, I think we need to talk about them because, you know, dietary cholesterol and your cholesterol levels are associated, but they're not fully linked. So we have to think about um, genetics, other, you know, what other treatment we're taking, what other medications we're taking, what else we're doing in our body. So there's so many different things to do. But again, fiber. But also... But also, who is going to help us live well, you know, after and post the cancer diagnosis? It doesn't make any sense, right? We're in these postmenopausal bodies. So many of our listeners are really young and we will always struggle to some element with metabolic health challenges somewhere along the line because no one is looking after our bones. No one is really helping us look after any of our other stats of how we can do this well. Brain, bone health, heart health. Who so, the heck is going to rise to the challenge? Me, me. Um, no. So I know. For that reason, I have set up a, a course, like an integrative, and this is specific for breast cancer patients, but obviously I am writing, you know, I do see other patients, but particularly because breast cancer is one of the most, is the most globally prevalent cancer that affects women and, you know, puts you through menopause quickly. Um, and, and in that course, I talk about how we address metabolic health, how yeah. we address our bone health and our heart health and all of those things, because it's really important because we can use nutrition and lifestyle, not just what we eat, but everything like stress, sleep, you know, all of those uh, physical activity to manage some of those symptoms. And actually there was a brilliant, brilliant article um, in 2021 looking at kind of holistic ways to manage menopausal symptoms and yeah. I go through all of those because I think it's really important because not all of us can take our HRT although you know it's not as probably as contraindicated as some people think and so to go through these things whether you work one-on-one with me or whether you work in this you know group setting and take on the course this will give you some ideas of what you can do and how you can take some control over your health but without being obsessed because I think that's yeah. you've got to live life life is so much more <laughs> than just being you know, not just orthorexic about your food but also orthorexic about your diet and lifestyle and I think so many people can become so obsessed with their health after a cancer diagnosis and we have to also remember that our health is a and if you look at the World Health Organization definition of health it's not merely the absence of disease but it's like sustainable physical mental and social health and we have to be able to go and eat out with friends and do things because that fills our cup and impacts our physiological health. And yet we forget about this. Yeah, I love that definition of health. And it's it is this organization. It's not you know it's not mine, but you know I think social health is so important, and we neglect that. And I think particularly after the pandemic, we've had such a hard time with relationships and loneliness and it's become so obvious but all of this you know when you're lonely and I always talk about myself when I'm lonely 
I will eat. And I will say this vulnerably because, and it's because I feel empty. And I've just had two weeks, like, well, the last month with different members of my family. And I can see how it impacted my eating. Obviously, there was a the crazy Christmas eating, but like, there is, you know, I just didn't want to, you know, I've come back and I, I'm like, great, my eating is good because my cup is full. And I feel like I've had, you know, I've been very loved over the last month. And I felt it. And that's so important to, you know, when you feel lonely or bored, that's when we eat. And that's why, let's go back to fasting, this time-restricted eating. So when you're eating with a certain time, it actually can work. Because when we do those things, often in the evening when we're sat in front of the TV and we're eating unconsciously and we're eating the bad things. And so I think that's where, let's come back to fasting because I think- Let's come back to it. I'm gonna link to your course in the show notes anyway, because I think that's really interesting for some people. Um, How does fasting link in with the metabolic health challenges, the insulin resistance challenge that you've explained? Hey, thank you for listening so far. This podcast has an amazing Facebook community full of inspiring women supporting each other and sharing their stories. Please come and be part of it. We'd love to have you in the group. Click the link in the show notes and come in now. So we know that poor glycemic control, um, so again, like releasing like insulin very quickly um, and, and, and not be able to control, it can lead to dysregulation of a metabolism. It can lead to inflammation. If we have chronic inflammation, we know that can cause oxidative stress, which can promote tumor growth. Um, so that's just kind of really simplified version of that. It can activate these you know, insulin-like growth factors and signaling pathways that can lead to, you know, cancer cells growing. Um, and bear in mind that our immune system is super clever. We all have cancer cells, even those who haven't had a cancer diagnosis. And our immune system actually can get rid of them all the time. And that's, you know, really, really important. So we we need to, you know, remember that our body is dealing with it all the time. But, you know, our metabolic health is affected by so many different things. You know, our mental health, exercise, breathing, our circadian rhythms, you know, the food we're eating, you know, hot and cold treatment, blue light, you know. so. That's really important. But let's talk about fasting itself. So there's different common forms of fasting. So I think there are several forms of intermittent fasting, including time-restricted eating. Each type of intermittent fasting includes fasting periods that are longer than an overnight fast of 8 to 12 hours. So common days of fasting can be the 5-2 diet, where you normally for five days and then two days of restricted calories. There's alternate day fasting. And I think the most common, that's probably the most talked about is this time-restricted eating, where we fast for a certain set number of hours a day, um, and that's longer than the normal or overnight fast. So what we know from the data, and there's the most data in breast cancer, but there's actually data for lots of different cancers, is that um, fasting and breast cancer, if you fast for 13 hours overnight, and I'll share the study with you, Danny, and I'll send you the link, um, can reduce the risk of breast cancer occurrence. But what are the benefits of fasting? There's so many benefits of fasting. Remember, we've done this for our health over many, many years, uh, you know, millennia rather. And we know that intermittent fasting can do more than burn fat. And a neuroscientist looked at this, a, a neuroscientist called Matt, Mark Matson, And his kind of summary of it was when changes occur with this as a metabolic switch affects the body and the brain. So what do they, what are the health benefits of fasting? Forget, parking menopause, parking cancer. It can promote blood sugar control by reducing insulin resistance. It can reduce inflammation, which can optimize the health in many ways. It can support heart health by improving blood pressure, triglycerides and cholesterol levels, which we obviously talked about when we talked about the deficient of metabolic health and metabolic syndrome. It can support our cognitive health and potentially decrease the risk of um, neurodegenerative disease. We are experiencing neurodegenerative disease in a way that's never happened before. And you think about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you know, it's on the, all on the increase. It can support weight loss by calorie restriction, optimizing metabolism. That's not the key focus here. It's really about some of the other ways that hormones, you know, work. It can support growth hormone secretion, which is important for our metabolism, muscle mass, and, and that's really important. It can increase longevity. And one of the biggest things for anyone that's affected by cancer, and we'll go into the nuance of this, it can potentially support the effectiveness of cancer chemotherapy and reduce the risk of cancer kind of reoccurrence and tumor growth. 
So this is how you're closing the circle for us, right? Because when you talk about the benefits of fasting, you're talking about all of the benefits really benefiting our metabolic health and our insulin resistance. And going back to our conversation 10 minutes ago, we kind of said most of us listening are probably in a poorer sort of shape or state of that metabolic health just because of having arrived in menopause early, having had a cancer diagnosis and all of the really difficult treatment that came with it. So those are the benefits. When you talk about the study, because I really want to know what that means for us and for the studies with cancer survivors. So this is 13 hours, like 13 hours of not eating doesn't seem that much. 13 hours is not a big deal. If you think about it, you finish your, you know, your dinner at 7 p.m. and you don't eat breakfast till 8 a.m. That's not yeah. a big deal. And actually, no. you know, there's obviously more, there's a lot of people do 16 8, which is, um, you know, only eating within eight hours. Me personally, I try to do 13 to 14 hours of fasting overnight. But regardless of what people do, where is the data? So the studies are suggesting. There is data. Yeah, 13 hours. Or... The breast cancer, and that's for breast cancer in particular. So, yeah. you know, we, we haven't necessarily looked at some of the other uh, cancers so specifically, but the reason they've you know done this in breast cancer is because there's a lot of people um, to study. And so this particular study looked at these 13 hours overnight, and they looked at quite a big number <clears throat> excuse me, they looked at a large number of people. And I think what we need to understand is there are two prevailing theories with cancer. One is the somatic mutation um, theory of cancer. And that's, according to that, cancer is a complex genetic disease and it's linked to inherited or um, somatic, that's in your body, mutations that in fact, you know, impacts um, tumor suppressor genes or proto-oncogenes, which basically all genes which are related to um, how our cell regulates and switches on and off um, growth and the cell cycle and whether, you know. So what we found is that there are mutations in lots of tumors. So we, it, it definitely, you know, that this theory has been going on for a long, long time. But what we're looking at is there's something called the hallmarks of cancer and there's now a new theory that's coming out called the you know metabolic mitochondrial theory. And that kind of explains some of these hallmarks of cancer better, but we don't know yet. And this mitochondrial metabolic theory may kind of really talks about how the, um, our metabolism and it's, and our mitochondria, mitochondria are the energy cells or the batteries. I mean, the cells or the energy, you know, the batteries of the cell and for these mitochondria to work, they use ATP, which is a molecule which is phosphorylated um, in our bodies. And what we know is that if there are changes in our mitochondria, and this, it can impact our metabolism, and there's potentially, and I'm trying to simplify, really simplify this, um, be linked to how cancer develops. And we don't really understand enough about how cancer develops. And, you know, cancer is not one disease. It's like 200 different diseases, yet they're all cells that's growing out of control. So we need to understand that to really understand how fasting works, why it works, and think, you know, all of those things. But we do know that fasting can change how our mitochondria behave and that overnight fast whether it's 13 hours or 14 hours or whatever it might be, can change how mitochondria behave. And that is yeah. what we need to have more studies to understand on. So a lot of the studies in fasting and cancer are small human studies. There's a way more studies in animals. And these animal models are based on cancer models of different types of cancers, whether it's breast, bowel, lung, glioblastoma, which is a type of brain cancer. Um, so we have loads and loads of animal models, but there are studies now in humans. And firstly, it's, you know, why are there fewer studies? Because people have to want to fast <laughs> and they have to be able to control it and they have to be able to measure it, you know, and not everyone wants to do that. So, but there are studies now. And so this first one that I've talked about with breast cancer and the 13 hours, it's not, it's not something that so it's, it it was released in 2016. So it's not that new. It's you know if you think about we're you know it's eight years old, um, and it's really really important. And they did it. This is not small. It was over two th two and a half. It was almost two and a half thousand women that looked at it. 
So what I want to know then is the big voices out there in the fasting sort of scene, and a lot of our women in our community often refer to those names. They talk about long periods of fasting and how really exciting things and shifts can happen in our body if we go without food for like 24 hours or longer periods of time. Is there any data like that for cancer survivors? So most of the data that's for longer fasting is to do with fasting through treatment and chemotherapy. Um, there isn't necessary, as far as I know, um, there is some data. I'm not going to say there isn't. There are, there's data looking at um, risk of recurrence and risk of um, mortality, dying, essentially. And there is definitely some size to show that fasting can help because we, don't, we need to understand why it's helping. Is it because it's helping our metabolism, our mitochondrial health? Is it, you know, because it's helping people to lose a little bit of body fat? It could be multiple things. So yeah. this data is starting to appear. It's not, there's a lack of data. They're just smaller studies, but then there's also bigger studies like this one that I'm talking about, which is about 13 hours. So is it necessary to do the longer ones? Not necessarily. If we just go back to gut health, which is, you know, I'm very passionate about gut health and cancer. When you have spaces in between meals, so you have four, five, six hours in between a meal, so you're not snacking, your body has a chance to digest its food, but also for the any gut cells to repair themselves. But at night, at night time, when you're fasting for those longer periods of time, there's a lot more um, time for your body cells to repair. There's a lot more stuff for your gut cells to repair, which is why we need to stop eating at a certain point at night and you know and spend time not eating. It's not just a new phenomenon. This is why we did these kind of fasts over the millennium maybe Hippocrates or you know any of the other cultures didn't know it necessarily understand the mechanisms but they knew it worked yeah and I think what's so interesting unless you have your focus and you understand what you're doing it's really hard you know often people think I need to fast for a very long period of time and only then I'm going to get the benefit but when you look at loads of people's habits and I've worked with so many people and you know we've all tried to come up with a healthier lifestyle for the last 10 years is people don't notice what we do and I always say get in touch with yourself like you go on a date with the most important person in your life and that is you right we know that is ourselves mm. because if I don't really notice and watch what I'm doing, I will have my dinner and then I will have a snack, you know, watching telly at 10 o'clock at night or, and I just don't even notice, but it's very easy to break those habits because I don't need those calories. I just eat because I eat and it's lovely and I want to snack on something. But if I do that at 10 o'clock in the evening and then I break my fast, maybe with a coffee with some oat milk or something at half past six the next morning, I've got a very short fasting window. And so those 13 hours, unless you really pay attention to them, also need to be planned, I think, for the majority of people. But I also have to think about sleep. So if you're eating within three hours of going to bed, that's going to increase your heart rate and your metabolism. And so you're less likely to be able to get to sleep and have good quality sleep. And that we know yeah. affects our health in multiple ways. So yeah. it's not just about the fasting. It's about, well, we all need to sleep well. So if you're eating into the evening, I've noticed even the other day, it was really cold and I got back, when I was jet lagged, I had a hot chocolate before I went to bed, which is not what I normally do, but I was cold and tired and, you know, it impacted my sleep. My heart rate was higher. Yeah. So, you That's, know. Yeah, it's full circle, isn't it? It's yeah. bringing the conversation back into full circle. Um, thank you for explaining us more about how metabolic health, insulin resistance, fasting is all linking in. And I think it is exciting, isn't it? Because what's always a horrible feeling is when you think your body is in a state that what doesn't work so optimal. And so we're always feeling on the back foot. And that's a horrible feeling to start a year with. And so I'm really excited to get this episode out in January, where so many people look at maybe finding new ways of being and new habits. And and I hope I can get you back on to talk about other things, because I, I love talking to you, not just from a cancer survivor's perspective, but you just get the bigger picture. I just... Yeah, it's great for you for you to be here. Thank you. I want to say thank you. You're welcome. But I think what people need to remember is that there's so many people who got into nutrition and different things after a cancer diagnosis or, you know, in the last 10 years. I, I've been doing this work for over 20 years. I did my master's in nutritional medicine in 2000, like starting in 2004. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time in 2006 when I completed the master's, you know, the talk part of the master's. So it's something I've been really involved in for over 20 years from a really kind of high medical research perspective and 
it's not a new thing. I mean, I was an early adopter. I was an early adopter of exercise. So, for example, one of the things that impacts our metabolic health is, you know, physical activity, exercise and insulin, you know, I mean, a resistance training. And again, like, you know, this is something I was really doing 20 years ago. And I think looking at someone's body isn't necessarily a great measure. You have to look at all that kind of... I know. Um, the other measurements like their blood pressure and their you know metabolic all the metabolic health measurements to so really see how healthy someone is and also like their body fat where are they storing are they storing it around the middle or they're storing it like under their skin you know under your skin and having a pear-shaped body is actually more protective than you know like apple shape around your middle so all of these things impact our metabolic health and whether we want to fast and things like that and i think when you've been through cancer you get so involved in some of the intricacies of this that you forget to do the basics which is Let's look after ourselves. Let's eat a really high quality, high vegetable diet with some good sources of protein and good sources of fat and get enough movement into our lives and get enough sleep. We then start worrying about these injuries. Or should we be fasting for 13 and a half hours or, you know, 15 or whatever it might be? And like, let's get the basics right. Let's go back. I know. And I do love that you're so non-judgmental because I know when we first met many years ago now, I said to you, I've stopped eating all sugars. I'm not touching anything. If anyone would have offered me a tonic water, I was aghast. I would have said, no way will I have a tonic water. And you always said to me, well, it's not that simple. You know, there are, we need to talk about sugars in a reflected way. And it's really quite complex. And I was like, I don't care what you say. I don't care what science says. I'm not touching sugar. And I never felt judged by you for making the choices I have. And, you know, I've been eating lots of cake and lots of sweets for many years now. But, you know, I've gone on a journey and I think it's that sort of development we are all allowed to make, isn't it? Whatever makes sense one year might not make sense another year. If anyone listens to us thinking, I don't care what the science says, I want to not eat. My fasting windows is 16 hours, four times a week. I would say go for it. Like you do you. Listening to this conversation, you do you. I've gone on so many U-turns in my own exploration and I've loved all of it. So go I've, for it. <laughs> I have too. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, maybe 12, about fasting and cancer, I'd have been, no, 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 we should do that. Da, 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 da. I've completely changed my tune. I think it's a really positive tool that we can use therapeutically. And that's A, because the evidence has changed and there's more evidence out there, but also our understanding of metabolic health. And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking there's a quite a big dietitian who, when I said about seven years ago that I am specializing cancer and like type 2 diabetes she poo-pooed me and she basically was well there's no link and I was like you know that if you have type 2 diabetes it increases your risk of breast cancer by 20 percent so that in it and when you look at insulin resistance there's a very clear link and it's yeah and it's so interesting that people just didn't get it and I you know you know my own we as we the whole point of being a scientist is that we keep learning and that's why I feel I am a nutritional scientist. I keep learning and I'm willing to own up to where I've changed my mind. And actually, we should all be changing mind all the time on all sorts of different things as we learn more. And I think the problem is we've become so polarized, particularly with advent on social media, that people just become stuck in one camp and they don't change. Yeah. They're so boring. They're so 2023. This is 2024. I'm all for having all of the difficult conversations, the conversations we don't have answers for. I really, my word for this year is go for it. I just want to go for it. I feel like I've been a really good girl for a really long time and now I want to hear it all. No license. And I just want to really tap into people. And I don't care if they're in the minority or majority of what they want to say. And I really want to learn from people. But saying that, I also want to hear from experts like you and to keep telling us what the data and the science does tell us so that we can make more sort of evidence-based decisions with all of our emotions muddled in. Anyway, it was wonderful to talk to you. I'm going to book you straight in for another chat about something else, <laughs> the thank genome and all of that testing maybe. But for today, thank you, Toro. You're amazing. Thank you. And I hope I've given people a bit of an overview into fasting. I know we didn't get into some of the intricacies uh, um, but there are studies to, in humans who've had cancer that, A, just to recap, that have it fasting for short amounts of time, 48 to 72 hours through chemotherapy, can increase quality of life, reduce um, the risk of the tumor growth, and it changes the tumor microenvironment. Um, and, it, and it makes it less likely for people to have side effects because side effects of chemotherapy are really the bane of people's life, of, you know, going through treatment. And then the other evidence, you know, is really that fasting for 13 hours overnight, particularly for people, breast cancer patients, just 13 hours can reduce the risk of reoccurrence. 
And there are obviously loads of other small um, studies in humans with all different types of cancer that show that fasting through treatment can reduce um, side effects, but also that fasting you know, post-treatment can help reduce because we know that certain cancers, there are 13 different cancers linked to being obese and overweight. And it's not about losing weight, but it's about changing your metabolic health. So this is where fasting could become an uh, important tool, but please work with a trained professional to understand because when you're fasting and you're eating for a small amount of time, you need to make sure the meals you're having are nutrient dense, that have lots of fruits and vegetables, that have pro enough protein and good fats. And that becomes harder if you're only having two or three meals, you know, two meals a day. So that's yeah. what I say, work with a, you know, a trained professional. Thank you. I'm feeling inspired to look at my routine. I can't remember how and when I was eating. I was busy working on improving menopause care for people after cancer. And now I need to rethink when and how I'm eating. I've loved our conversation. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Ooh, so much food for thought. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just love listening to Toro because she really makes things and brings things back into full circle, doesn't she? We need to talk and understand metabolic health, insulin resistance, to then talk about fasting and the benefits for it. Please have a look into the show notes if you want to share the resources and the studies Toro has provided us with that you can maybe share with your doctors and practitioners or the people you're working with. For me, I'm walking away from this conversation with a little bit of an inquiry, self-inquiry again. I actually can't remember if I'm snacking at the moment in the evening or when my last meal was for the last couple of weeks. Um, January is always a busy time, isn't it? I often feel quite exhausted still from getting through Christmas and being really busy. And there is hardly any time to really catch up with just starting to embark into my new routine. And so I kind of like always feel January, I'm still feeling like a hangover from December and I haven't really found my footings. But I'm going to make this conversation a reminder to just look without making any changes, to just look at my eating habits and when my first and last meal of the days are. And that, that to me is good enough and I know change will happen from that self-inquiry. I'm wishing you a really good start to your January. I hope all is well or as well as it can be considering all of our circumstances and how our community has come together. Sending you lots of love and a lot of um, enthusiasm for some self-inquiry too.